those of us who have known refugees for years kept saying, I'm sorry, are you are you talking about refugees? Like, clearly you just don't understand who these people are and who this community is. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue. This is the story of two women, two refugees, two refugees caught in a storm of danger, politics, and changing policies. And this is the subject of After the Last Border, Two Families and the Story of Refuge in America. Jessica Goudeau is the author. Jessica, thank you so much for joining with me. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start out by saying that um, I live in Austin, Texas, which is prominent in your book, and which has a history of refugee resettlement, even as the numbers exploded worldwide over the past decades. Your book details how the U.S. and cities like Austin have become less welcoming to refugees. Can you tell me a little bit about why? Yeah, it's, you know... I have lived in Austin for several years, and I came to refugees through the community. So I met uh, the woman that I write my book about, Muna, at a fall festival. And it was such a wonderful way to really find my way into the issues and the concerns uh, about you know what it means to be a refugee because this community is so strong. So um, when I first met her, there were a group of Burmese refugees here. And through those Burmese refugees, as we began to be friends with them, we got to know refugee services of Texas. And there's like this whole ecosystem that grows up around refugees. And it involved people from mosques and people from synagogues and people who had no faith tradition and people from a variety of Christian backgrounds. And all of them came together around helping this community um, it's like a tiny diaspora, not just people from, you know, one country, but kind of together living in apartments and helping them create a new life. And it really is one of the the most earnest, the most wonderful, the most giving communities you can find, both the people who are former refugees and the people who helped them. And so when we began hearing the first hints of anti-refugee sentiment in about 2015, those of us who have known refugees for years kept saying, I'm sorry, are you are you talking about refugees? Like, clearly you just don't understand who these people are and who this community is. And so watching the, the support for refugees begin to deteriorate among faith communities and among people who were once staunch supporters has been really like almost personally painful for those of us who have known refugees for a long time. You trace the lives in your book of two refugee women and their families, Muna, who arrived from Myanmar in 2007, and Hasna, who arrived in 2016 with the first wave of Syrian refugees. Could you share a little bit about their stories? Let's start with Muna. So Muna was part of a, a wave of people who came from Myanmar. The civil war in Myanmar is one of the longest running civil wars in the world. It has its roots in the British colonial system and the way that boundaries have, and this is true for a lot of resettlement or a lot of refugee situations, uh, colonial boundaries were often drawn without any awareness of or really care for regional tensions. And so um, Muna and several of the others are Karen refugees, which is a distinct ethnic and language group. There are several different groups and they call themselves hill tribes. 
um, which is in some places an offensive terms and not others. So we're often kind of aware of that. But that's the term that they often use to distinguish between the Karen people and the um, Kareni people and the Chen and the Kachen. And several of those groups have been persecuted within Myanmar uh for decades, I think most people in the West are most familiar most recently with the Rohingya people who have been persecuted uh, in Myanmar. And so when Muna was five, she fled for the very first time to cross the border into Thailand. And like many people from Myanmar ended up being stuck in a camp in Thailand. So there are camps in Thailand, there are camps in India, there are a lot of people who are living kind of hand to mouth in Malaysia where there are less camps. And there's, it was just this gigantic wave of people who are in what they call protracted refugee situations, which means they have no chance of getting out. And so in 2005, 2006, 2007, there began to be a move by the U.S. government to be, to bring some of those people from Myanmar and from some other places around the world, including Somalia and Burundi, into the United States. So she's one of the first refugees in that. And she had, um, though not an easy time, a much more welcoming experience than uh, Hasna had when she came in 2016. So Hasna's from Syria, and it was just a very different time for refugees by then. Talk to me about Hasna, because since 2016, the United States particularly has become significantly less welcoming to refugees. It it was really shocking. Um, when I first encountered Muna, and, you know, as she was here, she's my first refugee friend, and though I'm not in the book, um, as we talked, you know, that was kind of my experience of what it meant to be resettled. There were people around, and it was really joyful and very difficult and complicated. Watching the experience again with Hasna has been so incredibly painful to see. There, I don't want to give too much of the book away, but the policies that have happened since the 2017 executive order, the, we popularly call the Muslim ban, they have gone right down the middle of Hasna's life. And basically what the United States promised her when they offered her resettlement, you know, um, is completely different from what she arrived and found in her welcoming experience and, you know, what she's been able to, like the life that they've been able to lead here is so, so different from what Munan other refugees experienced. I mean, let's turn to Europe really quickly. Uh, working at Stratfor, I'm well aware of Turkey's recent decision to reopen its borders and potentially swamp Europe with a new wave of refugees, like we saw as the Syrian war progressed. This time, however, it appears the EU will harden its border and refuse a large number of migrants what happens to people like Hasna if that happens? So Hasna, because she's already resettled here in the United States, is in what I think is a uniquely painful situation in that she is safe, but her relatives and her children are not. You know, family reunification has always been an incredibly important part of the resettlement program since the 1960s when um, Lyndon B. Johnson made that one of the pillars of immigration. And so when she came over, she assumed that this would be the beginning of being able to reunite her family. That's her greatest goal is just to have her family be safe as any person or especially any mother would feel. I think any parent, I don't want to make that gendered. But so what you're talking about in Europe directly affects her grandchildren and her relatives. And so what is so incredibly difficult is that she and so many former refugees that I know They've become world experts on the entrance policy of, you know, Belgium and Italy and Germany because, you know, who has a border open at which point and how people come and go. There's this whole incredibly stressful network of people trying to help each other be safe. You know, I'm not a policy person, so I don't necessarily have 
policy answers, but the question that I think so many of us are asking is, what are people supposed to do if they can't find safety? Syrians do not want to leave their country. They're being forced out by a civil war that is just horrific. So where are they supposed to go? And I think until we have a, a better answer to that question, we're creating incredibly inhumane conditions on a scale the world has, has literally never seen. Can you explain a little bit, uh, because of your work in the community, how people understand and learn which is the right place to apply at a given time? And I assume that they are applying for refugee status. Absolutely. So um, I think one of the things that people don't always understand is the difference between the terms. And so just really quickly, asylum seekers are people who have crossed a border and are seeking asylum. Not all asylum seekers become refugees, but those who have talked to UNHCR, so the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, and there's a whole process to receive official like verification that they, in fact, are fleeing persecution and they're fearing for their life by the UNHCR criteria. Of those people, there are 1,445,000 currently in need of resettlement around the world. And those are the people like who are desperately who have, have proven that they are in need in a way that they cannot possibly return. Um, there are, in fact, almost like, – we're getting close to 80 million displaced people in the world, and that includes people, you know, climate change refugees and other people who, for whatever reason, can't get home. So we're not able – we're in a place that's truly unprecedented by worldwide standards. And understanding that those people who are in need of resettlement, once they've kind of begun the process – uh, the UN contracts or the UN has different contractors around the world that vet those people who have declared that they're refugees. And a very, very few of them, less than 1%, are actually eligible for resettlement. And not just in the United States, but in over 20 countries around the world. So when the United States closes its doors to refugees, we're talking about millions of people who are not able to be. Um, brought over here. And what it does is it creates a massive backlog and a pipeline that is not about, you know, supplies. It's about people. So there are family members who are now not going to see their children for, you know, five years or more. There are um, people in an entire infrastructure that's crumbling around us. And it's so frustrating because it took so long to build this program. And it's such it's really like it represents one of the best sides of the United States and has since the end of World War II. And so for us to lose this infrastructure, is it really is a cost for our country, but also the human cost for people just in terms of years of not being able to be together or being stuck in a camp and not having access to education or to good economic possibilities. Everybody's just permanently stuck and it is really, it's getting more and more inhumane as the years go on. Yeah, I mean, what you see in refugee camps are pretty intense, and those are the people that are actually safe. Mm -hmm. But uh, politics aside, can you just explain a little bit about where we stand now? So the Refugee Resettlement Program has always been a bipartisan program. And when so when just to, when we talk about politics, this has never been something that was, you know, a particular political aisle, you know, somebody on one side of the political aisle really cared about more than another. And so the program officially began in 1980 with a um, federal refugee resettlement program, the passing of the, Re the Refugee Act, and it passed the Senate with unanimous support, which I thought was incredibly amazing, especially in our polarized time. And so it's really only been in the last five years since about 2015 that we've heard candidates and 
other political figures beginning to talk about refugees as if they are coming to take advantage of the of U.S. generosity or as if they're kind of trying to game a system. I think part of what has happened is because people just don't understand what it means to be a refugee. It is an incredibly difficult process to go through. It's only offered to people who are truly deserving of receiving the things that they get, which is a little bit of funding and a chance to have a new life. Can I jump in there really mm -hmm. quickly? I mean, it, to be designated a refugee, you have to go through quite a bit of background checks and paperwork as well, right? Absolutely. It's one of the strongest. I think, again, I'm not a policy person, but I think it is the most rigorous vetting process to get into the United States. So it, it takes at least two years, especially for refugees from Syria. When Obama came in, he implemented several other policies to put in place so that um, refugees went through extra levels of scrutiny. Um, the refugees that I talked to, it's really fascinating. There was a story uh, with Hazna's husband where he came in and the people who were vetting him, and this was probably in like his fourth or fifth interview, were asking him about his cousin's parents. And he was like, how in the world could you begin to know this information? I, I understand that there are discrepancies and different people, but there is no way in this process that someone is coming in in order to hurt us. It would be so much easier to get a tourist visa, which is what most people do if they're going to be, be terrorists in the country, right? Towards the end of the book, you do get into the idea that despite what the United States has put in place over the last five, ten years, um, that there may be signs of hope in 2020. Could you tell me what that means? So because we're both in Texas, I will tell you that one of the things that I have found the most hopeful is that in January, when they were, when the federal government decided that states needed to opt into resettlement, which has never happened before, it's always been something that, you know, the federal government decided the numbers and then refugees are assigned to places based on um, what agencies are there. And, you know, there's a kind of this whole process for how refugees come. Um, in 2015, several governors said, we absolutely don't want refugees to come to the United States. But in 2020, it was only our governor, Governor Abbott, that said that he no longer wanted to have Syrian refugees. He did not opt into the program. So much of that has gotten lost because the pandemic has taken over so much of this news. But those of us who have been watching refugee resettlement see signs of hope in that uh, politicians don't feel that it is expedient in the way that they did in 2015 or 2016 to speak out against refugees. And I think part of that is because this is such an amazing community of people who have been speaking on behalf of themselves and who have been advocating for people in order to say, we need to allow refugees to be a part of the United States. So it's a small sign, but I'm hoping that it that it's indicative of a sea change and that public opinion will be changing around refugees in the near future. Well, you note that 41 governors wrote letters consenting to refugee resettlement now. is it that, So that's the sign of a turning tide, you hope? So part of what I have found so fascinating in this is that public opinion is the indicator, really, in terms of how refugee resettlement plays out. So we talk about this in terms of um, politicians, because politicians have control over the numbers, but the the think the rudder of this, if politicians are at the wheel, the rudder of this, of the ship is public opinion. Mm. And it's such an ephemeral thing. So the fact that governors think that it might be politically expedient seems to me to be an indicator of public opinion shifting on this. And I think that's what we're hoping for. I think watching the tides of public opinion change around refugees and around other social issues 
in the last, you know, five to 10 years, we can see how quickly those things change. And what I'm hoping is that we're moving back towards understanding what it really means to be a refugee and opening our doors again in a way that is more in line with who we've always been. Talk to me about how someone can learn more about the refugee resettlement program if they're interested. One of the things that I always do is recommend that people go to their local organizations. Um, there are definitely things that you can do at the national level, but almost every city has, uh, every major city has a refugee resettlement place. I shouldn't even say every major city. Several very small towns have incredibly fierce refugee communities. A lot of that has changed in the last few years. This infrastructure has gone down significantly with the lowered admissions numbers. But I tend to recommend to people that they try to find their local place. So for us here in Texas, Refugee Services of Texas is a really large one. But I've been in touch with several people in different places around the world. And I know a lot of them are offering online volunteer. There are just a lot of opportunities for people to engage, even in the middle of this pandemic, um, so that we can support refugees. And I think the most important thing that people can do to learn about it is to get to know a refugee. And I think those are the kinds of things that you can do if you engage with your local community. Given the pandemic, are you going on tour to support this book? A virtual tour. It is Everything is going to be virtual. The book is After the Last Border, Two Families and the Story of Refuge in America. Jessica Goudeau is the author. Jessica, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll have details about Jessica's book in our show notes, and you can read more about U.S. and European decisions regarding refugees at Stratfor Worldview. Podcast listeners get a special subscription offer. Go to stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's stratfor.com slash podcast offer. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.